0: I sometimes have a phrase, which is a little bit of a funny phrase, which is many, if not most people don't know how to be wealthy, that they may be in circumstances that could provide them with wealth or actually does provide them with wealth. But psychologically, they are unprepared for the
1: journey that
0: that they are on.
1: Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out-of-money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money podcast. Today is my distinct honor to welcome Dr. Jim Grubman to the show, uh, Dr. Grubman has written several books, and his newest book is called Wealth 3.0 The Future of Family Wealth Advising. And so, Dr. Grubman has done extensive research as well as hands on work with families across the wealth spectrum. He has a wisdom of knowledge and uh, experience. And so, I'm so excited to be able to ask him questions. I have been following his work for quite a number of years now, and I first read his first book, Strangers in Paradise. And it's a book that I reference in my work quite often. So, it's an honor. Uh, Dr. Grumman, to have you here today.
0: Uh, it's great to be here, Ed. Please call me Jim. And uh, I've been looking forward to this because you have your own uh, breadth and depth of experience and a great following. So I think we can have a great conversation.
1: Yeah, thank you, Jim. I appreciate that. And so how does one become you? What What was your journey? Like, did you wake up as a five-year-old little boy and say, someday I'm going to consult with billion-dollar families? Like. <laughs> Uh
0: no it was to say it was not even on the horizon or or in my vision would be an understatement uh, and and ironically um I came to it what we might say is relatively late in life I've actually had multiple careers and um I spent my first major career in healthcare uh I did not come to wealth counseling and psychology until my late 50s, Uh, I'm a lot older than people often assume uh, because that was like 25 years ago. Um, And so, uh, yeah, I had no no idea that this would be my future. And it's funny because uh, to all of those out there who may be thinking about it, I came to this career and this work which I am so passionate about and enjoy tremendously. It's so fulfilling after my other career. So you never know what's going to happen.
1: Wow. I, I love it. Like, that's incredible. And I think that there's so much hope in that, because there's a lot of people that hit their 50s. As far as I can tell, I'm 42. So I'm kind of projecting and talking about something that I haven't experienced, but no, but I have been through a lot of career changes. I mean, firefighter to financial planner to therapist to back and yeah, so I appreciate that. But yeah, I mean, sometimes the best work is doesn't come until the second half of life. Would you say that's fair?
0: Absolutely, and, and when, you know, many people know the Steve Jobs uh, commencement address from, I forget what year it was, 2001 or something like that, where he uh, talks to the graduating class, and his point is basically... You really never know where life is going to take you and what's going on. You can only turn and look back and see how you have gotten to where you're at now. He tells a great story about how taking a calligraphy course in college, which was like totally, I think I'll just audit this. It's interesting. uh, Helped create the graphical interface for the first Mac, and but who would ever predict that? And for me. Part of why I've been successful in, but also enjoy my work, is it draws together all my multiple past lives, Um, medicine, psychology, uh, pharmacology, uh, law, business, wealth, finance, that when you look back, um, uh, I basically was on track during college and graduate school in the medical field and got a fair amount of medical education and then moved into psychology. But what really influenced my later life was um, my father who literally came from nothing. He was a Holocaust survivor. Like my mother became a successful businessman in Ohio, which is where I grew up. Uh, shout out to all those people out there from Ohio. Hey, Raising the roof. and um, all right. And uh, then he basically dropped dead suddenly in 1980, just as I was about to go off to PhD psychology school to get my uh, clinical psychology and neuropsychology degree. And so while I was uh, learning, developing, and building a healthcare career, I was helping my mother understand um you know finance uh, the markets trusts and estates other sorts of things and was steeped in a whole education about wealth and affluence that i kept hidden from my healthcare colleagues because in healthcare as you well know therapists you know it's highly suspect if you have a business head and you work in healthcare you're not supposed to know about money in any way and so I actually segregated that part of my life, which a lot of people do. And I think we can talk about that as sort of uh, not just being in the closet about being wealthy, but being in circumstances where almost like you need to uh, compartmentalize. You need not to do it because it's so easily misunderstood and there are so many stereotypes about it. And then, you know, eventually... In the um, mid late 1990s, I was, I basically walked away from a really nice career and job in healthcare because I could. I had the resources to be able to leave a well paid, highly placed job running a multidisciplinary behavioral health clinic in a medical system uh, and uh, go back to private practice and have the independence to do whatever I wanted to do, which is very relevant about money. You know, it it gives you independence if you will use it. And so that was the dot-com era um, and, and all sorts of stuff. The whole field of wealth psychology was being born at the time during what I now call Wealth 2.0. And I'm a child of Wealth 2.0 very much. And, you know, as they say, the rest is history.
1: Wow. You know, you may not see this coming, but I'm really struck by you sharing your folks being survivors of the Holocaust. And how profound that is. And and I don't know what to assign it to, Jim, but I've really been confronted recently with a, a number of clients who have been sharing family stories of parents and grandparents being Holocaust survivors. As we're talking about their money, and if you're comfortable, can you talk to us a little bit more about what that means, what you've seen in your studies, in your own personal reflection about surviving such a profoundly painful experience, and how that shapes one's trajectory in life and relationship with wealth? I, I'm sorry for such a vague, general question. It it's hard to ask a precise question around that.
0: No, actually, it's quite reasonable, and it's very relevant to our conversation, Ed, because it has to do with money messages, uh, money personality, and a point where actually I had to confront my money history related to the Holocaust in order for you and me to be sitting here right now. It was uh, Very relevant that, as you can imagine, Uh, And again, remember, both my parents uh, uh, went through the Holocaust. They each were in concentration camps. My father, who was a a very brilliant guy, and and I was close with him, was in Auschwitz and some others. And they were brought over after the war to um, Northeast Ohio, where I was raised. And as I say, literally started from nothing. They were just given some help by my mother's cousins. And um, my father, who was trained as a textile engineer in Poland, was put to work in a scrap metal yard, uh, directing truckers to, um, you know, come and deliver scrap metal. And from that humble beginning, because he was very capable, he, he flourished in the industry and at the time of his death was doing quite well. Um, and I remember um, a couple of years before he died, we did not know he was gonna be dying. He said to me in somewhat veiled terms, cause you remember I was in my uh, early mid twenties. He said, you know, he's reached a point in his life where he has a level of financial security he never dreamed of. And I remember the He looked different, that that he looked more relaxed and he was enjoying it. He and my mother traveled. But to me, one of the things that it caused in me was the Holocaust in general gave me a very clear understanding that the world is not necessarily a safe place, a secure place, that things, you know, the veneer of civilization is quite thin and easily can turn on a dime and... Things can become quite dangerous in a literal way. And so I always had the sense, compared to most of the kids around me, of the fragility of life and how important uh, security and safety are, including financial security. When my father died and left my mother some money, you know, I also uh, uh, began to have access to some money and. Uh, I was always a saver and managed money well. I had my father's business head. and um, But what I realized as we had more money through the 80s and 90s. Remember, the bull market started in 82, and, and things grew. We lived middle-class, upper-middle-class life, modestly, while amassing a certain amount of uh, reserves, and... That point I mentioned where I was running a a major uh, behavioral health clinic uh, in the 90s, I was really burned out. And I needed to change situations, but I felt trapped. And uh, a wonderful friend of mine who knew my situation, one day she asked me, um, you know, what does money mean to you? And I gave the answer I always immediately gave, which is, oh, independence. And what that really meant was money can get you out of bad situations that you cannot get out of if you don't have money. But she was very smart. She looked at me and she said, so is your money buying you independence now? And my head exploded. (laughs) Yeah. That's uh-huh. it. And and I realized it's like I was going to not have to continue to just have this reserve in the background. I was going to have to tap it in order to walk away and start fresh with something new. And from a money message and money personality standpoint, to use a little bit of that financial security for my benefit was really hard. Mm. And I think for many people listening to us here, maybe you can relate to it, which is, you know, there comes a point where sometimes you need to switch gears or confront um, how you're using money in order to really, you know, get the benefit of money. And not everybody finds that easy to do.
1: In hearing that, I mean, there's uh, such a powerful story of, you know, money means independence to me. And then being challenged at a deep yeah. level, like, well, is it creating yeah. independence for you now? Is it actually, it was more conceptual. And then it was like,
0: challenge. Exactly. It was, yeah, yeah, no, got to have that savings reserve, got to have the, the large numbers in the account, but never touch it. And it's like, well, wait a minute. You know, what is it there for? What is the purpose of that money? Yeah. And the reality that, you are living circumstances right now that that is a purpose for. And connecting the those two things, now is the time, use your money for your benefit. Right. Um, uh, I, I literally was not seeing it, and she was the one who pointed out, you know, you need to think about what you're doing. And very soon after that conversation, um, I set up, Going back into private practice and gave my notice and walked away. And of course, you know, uh, it turned out well. And the markets rebuilt the money and it all worked out fine. But I had to use um, not financial security, but financial support in order to make my life better.
1: So, question for you. Are you you married? Do you mind me asking? I am. I have
0: actually the best wife in the world, and we have been together for more than 45 years. Uh, This September uh, is actually our 45th wedding anniversary. I'm very blessed that way, too. Wait,
1: when did you say your anniversary is?
0: Uh, We are recording this in September, and at the end of this month is our 45th wedding anniversary. Yeah.
1: Oh, congratulations. That's wonderful. My wife and I also share a September anniversary. We're crossing 17 years. Ah. But, you know, I think ah, okay. one of the emphasis of this show is also helping couples understand how to talk about money in transition. And so yeah. I'm not doing the math, mental math very quickly in my head here. But as you're working through this career transition, I imagine you're married. And Oh,
0: married. yeah. and And we had to talk about that. Absolutely, and uh, again, uh, this is very on point to your work and this audience and and everything that we all do um, fortunately and and you know quite tangibly, my wife and I have had very consistent money approaches in our lives, which has really contributed to the marriage um, and uh, you know to her, she also feels you know money is security. She lives she has lived frugally. She grew up in western Massachusetts in a um, middle class environment that started off working class. And so we've had very we're very compatible in our money um, approaches and, and as um, the Clances say money scripts. The thing is, interestingly, sometimes I've had to help her spend a little more money. And uh, sometimes she has been encouraging of me to go ahead and, and be a little more extravagant. I happen to be a car guy. I like Porsches. And uh, to her credit, uh, one day we saw an old Porsche back in 1978 for, I think it was $1,600. And I admired it. She says, go ahead. You know, yeah. we can get it. We, we did the math. Uh-huh. We could get alone. She has been very supportive in that. But we've been very compatible. And I think that's contributed tremendously, yeah. not only to the life that we've had, but to the marriage that we've had.
1: That compatibility is so important. And, you know, I know a lot of people listening may not start with that compatibility. And I'm sure in your work and, and consulting with folks, you run into that probably quite a bit.
0: Well, it, it's funny, I do, and in fact, in, in working not only with clients, with couples, but training advisors, issues of couples and money um, are right up there as the top issues to be dealt with, and you mentioned strangers in paradise, um, and the whole, what I call the cultural model of wealth, that people grow up in one socioeconomic culture and as as I did, and I don't know, maybe you are too, uh, migrate during their lifetime to another socioeconomic culture, um, and they're immigrants to wealth. Which, of course, from my background, you can see where I started thinking about immigrants to anything, <laughs>
1: um, and how their yeah,
0: <laughs> and how their kids are natives,
1: right, yeah. right there, and I didn't make it until you just put it together. But of course, the reference to immigration, you know, is so personal for you and it, it makes perfect sense.
0: But the- Absolutely. And when Dennis Jaffe, my collaborator, and I were uh, working on understanding the psychology of wealth and noodling on the demographics, uh, how 80% of the people wealthy did not grow up with wealth and things like that. Who knows, uh, subconsciously or whatever, at least in my head, the whole percolating thing of uh, understanding what it's like to be a kid of immigrants uh, and then to be native of America, not an immigrant, for me, um, you probably moved around in there and combined with what, what Dennis was saying and we came out with the whole immigrants and natives metaphor. But uh, where we got onto this is when you have a couple and both are immigrants to wealth. Uh-huh. Uh, I talk about in the book, you know, how you cope with the strategy you use cross-culturally of how you adapt and adjust to the new culture can be very different for each member of the couple. And when those are not congruent,
1: um, you get big trouble. So if that's something that a couple is faced with where they're not adapting similarly to this migration together, assuming they both start from a a place of poverty or working class and they're upward moving and they've gotten the education. Many of the people that I work with have maybe the first generation to get a graduate degree above and beyond college, right? And so they're trying to sort it out. And how do you help couples to navigate moving into this land of high income, which is not necessarily wealth, but it certainly helps to build wealth having higher income, but not necessarily. Right. I mean, well
0: i I think that's sort of the core of the issue, Ed, that um, you know, how people adjust, uh, because it has an influence in a couple of things. One is, you know, for the couple itself, but also in parenting. And right. the the real secret just between you and me, Ed, here. No one else may know of this. Now, right
1: now, we can't hear this. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's just you and me. Uh, is that really the the main secret about wealth? Is is it's mostly about parenting, and and how uh, parents lay the groundwork for children to be able to understand wealth and to do well with it versus not. So, we can we can talk about that too.
1: Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, Please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30 minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now back to the show. Yeah, I want to, I want to keep going down, push down that rabbit hole a little bit more around the parenting and what do you mean it? And I'll just show my cards. I look through the psychology of attachment a lot to try to understand like attachment theory, um, I know attachment
0: theory and psychology quite well. It's very good. Yeah.
1: And so uh, that's the lens that I think about for caregiving. And the, for me, I look through that lens of secure attachment versus insecure attachment and in the different categories. And if you're more on the insecure attached side, how that then makes it harder to manage the journey into wealth. Is that kind of comporting with how you see the world or?
0: Well, in some ways, uh, you, you know, here we are, Psychologist, uh, uh talk about this sort of stuff and we'll try and avoid too much jargon and, and detail for the audience but the uh, the issue is a couple things one is depending upon how secure somebody's attachment is in general in life right. it makes a difference in how they're going to manage money and and when I you know consult with parents uh, they often ask about you know Should I be doing allowances with my kids? What about my 20-somethings or whatever? And sometimes even in the zero to five uh, age range, what should be done to establish uh, good money skills for the future with really little kids? And one of the things that um, we talk about is it is actually attachment and secure attachment that is most important in the very young years because... When kids are insecure about the world, about attachments and things, the risk is, as adults, they're going to use money as a way to manage that. That essentially, kids who have insecure attachment emotionally uh, with wealth find you can buy relationships, you can use money to keep somebody in the marriage, you can... Um, You know, money becomes literally the coin of exchange uh, for attachment and and whatever in a bargaining way and as an economy. And so kids who um, struggle in the early years with having secure attachment often wind up as adults having money problems because um, they have a very powerful mechanism for generating or maintaining attachment when in actuality you know a lot of things are not good
1: oh man i shouldn't have said anything about attachment because <laughs> now i have a hundred more questions on attachment and so listeners bear with me if you're not if you haven't journeyed into the field of attachment that's okay just know that this the field of attachment studies is a really large field of study in the field of psychology. And you may be having a, what does this mean for me moment and starting to think about your parents. And so just take a breath. Don't go too far off. Just stay with this conversation and know like you can work through insecure attachment. That's also the good news, right? Is we can, move towards healthier relationships. So can we talk about that a little bit and how, um, moving towards secure attachment helps with the wealth journey
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, Because in some ways, and I think this relates now to sort of financial therapy and for therapists who are able to work in the field of money and, and wealth. And it's interesting because I'm going to put a caveat in here. A lot of therapists really know very little about money and wealth in terms of they don't even know that there's a literature about it. They extrapolate from their own views, sort of general society, general knowledge, and they think that they can handle money issues from a general psychology standpoint, uh, power differentials for couples, things like that. When in actuality, if you work in the field, very often there are different approaches, different techniques, different concepts um, that would be done if you know what you're doing compared to the therapist down the block. So um, that's... That's a side area, but
1: for as people are listening, this is, if you're thinking about, I'm trying to get help to sort out my relationship with money and my therapist is not able to help me, don't feel bad, right? And this is not a beat up on therapy right. either. This is just a, an acknowledgement that every professional has a scope of knowledge mm-hmm. and ability. And if you're struggling in the money area, your therapist may not be able, your general therapist may not be able to help you navigate that. Even if they're trying, because they may not have the specialized knowledge that they need to have about the psychology of of money and wealth. Exactly. I think yeah.
0: that's that's. The, it's good that you say that because, for a lot of therapists as well as a lot of you know patients who seek therapy, the idea that you would assume your therapist knows about money issues uh, or wealth, when in actuality it's never taught in schools. It's actually. Um in, I mentioned this in the book on Wealth 3.0, in the American Psychological Association, which has like 160 or 120,000 members or something, and many, many, many divisions, there is no division for financial psychology. Psychology has always sort of walked away from learning about or wanting to deal with money and wealth, and it's time that we bring it back in. The thing is, most therapists get virtually no training in money or wealth issues. And so if you do need help on those areas, seek out somebody who does understand and ask them questions. You know, what, how were you trained? What is your basis for knowing things about dealing with money issues and wealth? Um, and if the answers are kind of generic, then you may want to be concerned.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes, so you know, there's there's so many ways we could go with this conversation, but I, you know, I know I started to ask about it, secure attachment and building wealth, and I think even if we can blend that conversation into wealth three what is wealth three What does that mean? What is the view of wealth three point Sure,
0: wealth three is my you know shorthand uh, uh, description of organizing the fact that we, as a field, have gone through um, a very specific set of uh, uh, activities, periods of growth and stuff. What I called Wealth 1.0 was an era pre-1980, 85, uh, because most people don't realize that the wealth management industry and, I mean, financial planning, all of that stuff how new a field all of that is it's only about 40 years old and there was a time before it that um, you know uh, basically things were stocks and bonds and there were private bankers for those with wealth and very few things for um, you know those who had a little bit of money but it was in the 1970s that the laws changed in the U.S. uh, ERISA the law was created to create retirement accounts everything that we are benefit from right now really only began starting in the late 1970s and the 1980s and that launched an era moving from wealth 1.0 into what i call wealth 2.0 in which the whole field of wealth management financial planning uh, family wealth advising wealth psychology you know, things like that um, uh, was born. And uh, things that we now take for granted, like Jay Hughes talking about the many capitals of the family, that was 1997 when he first published that. So, what I talk about in the book with my colleagues, again, Dennis Jaffe and Kristen Keffler, is Wealth 2.0 was amazing and transformative. Unfortunately, it also started to sprout some weeds and, and negativity around it, things that we um, have, have never questioned. Uh, the validity of the proverb, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, and 70% of wealth transfers fail. We have the statistics which actually turns out to be not true. And in the book and in some articles, I've detailed how I went back and basically dug through the original literature on some of those statistics and discovered it was all based on one study, very circumscribed, small study that was about family business, not family wealth, and how it was never replicated and there are huge problems with its validity. But we keep repeating it. And the relevance, again, for couples and for individuals who are immigrants to wealth is, you know, it is natural for people to be afraid of what coming to wealth will do to your family. What wealth 2.0 said to them is, yes, you should be very, very afraid. We know wealth fails. We know, did I tell you about church sleeves the shirt sleeves? And so, yes, it's true, it's valid. And therefore, let's see what we can do to protect the family from the money and keep it away. What I am, am saying is, well, I think we're moving into the next major era of wealth 3.0, which is to leave behind the negativity and pessimism that has been built up around wealth 2.0 and uh, move beyond it to looking at strengths, looking at who succeeds, not who fails, to look at the fact that we actually don't know. And in fact, it could be a much more positive picture than we have told people. And let's, let's start looking at it in a much more positive way. To say it's uh, touching a nerve or going viral would be an understatement. People are really taking to the message.
1: I can't help but think about it for myself. I mean, obviously I'm in this world where a lot of my work is focused on meeting many couples that are, let's say between 35 and 55. They're professionally educated. Um, they have a professional background. They're working as professionals. Um, they have high income, but they don't have high net worth. And they're kind of stuck on that journey of trying to build wealth. And I, and I have to imagine at some unco- deeper unconscious level, there's this fear about accumulating wealth that it will destroy us. Whether it's stated consciously or not, I feel like that story is so endemic. And we we see kind of the, the glamorized, tragic, wealth wealthy family stories all over the place, right? And Netflix series like Shit Creek and I don't know, whatever else. And so... Succession and and all of that and yeah and and so you know like there's just like as humans like why would i want to do that and i don't know that it's all being thought through in the way that i think through it consciously but um that vision and and what the statistics bear out is families do actually create wealth and can transfer it pretty successfully and not have it air quotes corrupt the family
0: exactly and i think that's again kind of where the rubber meets the road in work that we do and and for maybe some of the people listening to this podcast which is uh i sometimes have a phrase which is a little bit of a funny phrase which is many if not most people don't know how to be wealthy that they may be in circumstances that could provide them with wealth or actually does provide them with wealth but psychologically they are unprepared for the journey that that they are on and either inadvertently or occasionally purposefully will say um let me let me tell you a story dennis and i were presenting to a a wealthy group a peer network support group uh and this was back in uh, some years when we were talking about the hundred year family project of those families that are actually quite successful. Dennis wrote the book, Borrowed from Your Grandchildren. And um, we were talking about uh, the research, which was groundbreaking research that showed, you know, what about those who succeed, not those who fail? What do they do? Which is emblematic of positive psychology of don't look at the ones who fail, look at the ones who actually are doing well and find out what are they doing. And we were talking about 100-year families and what they do and things like that. And then we had a Q&A discussion. And during the Q&A, one guy over at the end of the table here, kind of quietly, hesitantly puts his hand up and he says, actually, I have a question. It's kind of a strange question. Uh, why would I want to be a 100-year family? Like, Like, what's the good in that? You know, I did well. I made it. I'm going to enjoy it, and my kids can do that too if they want to or if they don't want to, but why should I even be thinking that it's a good thing to be a 100-year family and preserving the wealth? And it was a great question. It's it's probably a question that's on a variety of people's mind. And essentially, what we said is, you don't have to be. If you don't want to be, you don't have to. We're not saying, and I think that's the difference again between, wealth 2.0 and 3.0, which is a little bit of the, you should be having family meetings and you should do this and you should do that and you should be great stewards. And if you don't, then you're failing, whatever. It's like you can determine the purpose of what you want to do as long as you're kind of doing it consciously and not driven by things that you're not in control of and whatever. And if you don't want to be a hundred year family, you don't have to be. But The question is, are you doing that because you've made a conscious choice? Or because, for example, you don't know how to be a hundred year family. You don't believe it's possible. You think actually it's a bad thing to give your kids money because you've been told that's a bad thing. Um, you know, there's so many actors and actresses who say, oh, we're not giving our kids any money because we think it's going to ruin them. And so we're giving it all away and our kids can make their own money. And everybody reads that and says, oh, well, wow, they know what they're doing. It's like, no, not really. So the motivation, are you are you making that decision um, with full knowledge of the options? Or is this based on a lot of stereotypes and false beliefs about wealth? Do you even have the skills uh, for handling wealth, do you know how to uh, save, manage your reserve, make good decisions? It's really all about good decision making. And if you don't have the skills, of course, you're going to have a high income, but no assets.
1: Right. There, there is a skill set that can be learned and developed over time. But it takes becoming more reflective. I had another client recently share that I've never, I have never really thought about my relationship with money and how I. I just do it, and I and I appreciate the candidacy, and I, I think that that's true for a lot of folks, and I think my work at you know on the from the financial therapy standpoint is to draw people into reflection, and um, I was reading another you know fellow you know wealth psychologist whatever we want to call him Jamie uh, Weiner he was talking about the origin of psychology was around self reflection, you know, and just thinking about yes. But that's where part of the talking cure came to is it like if we can just get curious and pre associate we can figure it out, and we know more now about how it all works, but there is a degree of raising consciousness and just getting people to become curious about themselves and what's going on here that helps them move along the path so uh, Jim, you know, as we bring this conversation to a close, there's, I mean, so many threads that we've, we've put, you know, family history and attachment and that really the way we think about accumulating wealth is very different than what we, we absorb from culture. What's, what's one parting piece of guidance, advice, counsel that you would offer folks that are listening that are on their journey into the land of wealth?
0: In many ways, related to what you just talked about and self-reflection. My biggest advice would be, know thyself. That, as I told the story even about, you know, I had to come to grips with my money insecurity mm. in order to um, move to a new level, which, of course, you know, opened the door to my entire career and the remainder of my life. Um, <laughs> but who, who who knew that that would be there?
1: Right.
0: That you really need... To understand what's driving you, and interestingly, um, you may remember there was a period of time when client profiling, uh, you know the six pro- the six subtypes of uh, the wealthy, the nine subtypes of this, the yeah. whatever back in the uh, early 2000s it was a very prominent trend in financial planning of uh, client profiling. And um, one of the best, most solid psychologically grounded and statistically well grounded uh, analyses for that came from a psychologist, Kathleen Gurney, Uh who talked about uh, your money max personalities. And the reason I'm telling this long story here is she had, uh, I think, nine personalities or profiles, one of which was the money master. Mm. You know, there were some that were heavy in security. There was some on safety players. There were extravagant gamblers, this and that. But her analysis said, "Wait a minute! You can have a profile, uh, which she called the money master, where you're making decisions with head, with heart, with spirit, well grounded decisions, good understanding of how money works, good understanding of your life and psychology." And you're not driven by emotional decisions about money. And uh, that's, uh, people really need to understand it's hard, but you can aspire to that and be a really good decision maker about money. And if you are, it changes life.
1: It changes life. I love that. And so maybe the final question, I know we've got to wrap this up is, are you currently driving a Porsche? Has that fascination with...
0: Actually, I have. Uh, I've I've had multiple Porsches over the years, and um, my wife, again, has been wonderful. And again, it's a great example. I've never had a Porsche that we couldn't afford, uh, except for that very first one where (laughs) the choice, we were so poor, the choice was continuing the loan for the Porsche or having a better apartment to live in. And we actually sold that Porsche to get rid of the tiny little car loan, so that we could move to a better place. We always um, uh, made the decision: can we afford it? And when we could, uh, yes, I've I've enjoyed it, and it's been one of my pleasures in life.
1: That's incredible. I love that, and I think it's it is a powerful story because, uh, right, symbolic Porsche stands for a lot for a lot of people, and sometimes people will take on that burden to the detriment of their financial well-being and so i think that reflect of what's driving me and it sounds like you know it comes for you from a place of money mastery it's like i know where my money is i know what we need and it here's how it fits
0: so absolutely and maybe in uh, another conversation we can have another podcast i will actually tell you the story of a porsche and my again my my money insecurity and how i hesitated to get a porsche and it was a very dear friend of mine who was at the end of her life with a very different perspective, yeah. who helped me understand the decision that I had to make about it.
1: Oh, that is a cliffhanger like none other for me. And I will definitely have to have you back to hear that story. Jim, thank you so much for your time.
0: Yeah, It will be fun. It's a great conversation we've had today, Ed, and and we probably should do it again. So, yes, to hear the rest
1: of the story, you got to get me back again. That sounds Um, good. I will definitely do that. Thank you, Jen. Take care. I invite you now to stop for five or ten minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money, Ed.